Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. This is the first recorded biblical circumcision that actually occurred on the eighth day. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. What an awesome section. So this little part I say, when God flexes, we laugh. Not like you just laughed at me and my arm, but it's a laugh of joy and a laugh of wow. So verse one, if you know the story of Abraham, it's the culmination of chapter 12 to 21, right? Chapter 12, come to this land and I'm going to give it to your descendants. The problem was Abraham was 75, Sarai was 66, and they had no kids, So we've watched this process now of many chapters where this has not happened. I think you could actually even go back to, it's the culmination of chapter three, verse 15, all the way to this, that there's coming this promised seed, offspring, it's the same word in the Hebrew. And that offspring is gonna be a blessing to all nations. So we're seeing that actually come to pass. So it's massive. I want you to notice a couple things. It's been 25 years What did Abraham need to make it for 25 years? Patience. He needed a lot of patience. Patience, I think, in America, 21st century, is increasingly difficult because everything is sped up. So I was reading this article on computers and there's this law about computers that computers get twice as fast every 18 months. So that's the speed. And it's been pretty consistent going back now decades into the 60s. Like it's just every 18 months, you get a twice as fast computer. And so they said, if the same thing was true of an automobile, <laughs> guess how fast your automobile would travel? 300 and 35 trillion miles per hour. Almost as fast as my Volkswagen. <laughs> right? So we now have these devices and they're, they're gonna just keep getting faster and faster and faster. And what that has done to our mindset now is we just want things now. Amazon, right? Why is Amazon crushing everybody? Because right? you can have it. It'll be here tomorrow. Like, right? They just bought Whole Foods. Hey, we're going to buy an entire company. It's not even going to change our bottom line one bit. We're just going to buy a company. Why? So we can give you food when you want it, right? The moment they bought them Blue Apron, which has been exploding, they just, they've tanked now. Their stock just tanked because they know Amazon's going to kill them. 
Like we want things now. It's immediate. And yet the big story of the Bible is God doesn't work on that timeline. And if you want to read a good chapter on this, read Romans chapter four. And in verse 20, it says this. It's a great little verse. It says, in this process of 25 years that Abraham grew in his faith. So we can ask like, why does God make me wait, you know? Why does this happen to me? Why, why can't it just be right now? Why can't I get married? Why can't I have kids? Why can't I have that job? Why Whatever it is, you're all right? Why does God make me wait? Well, I think a big part of the reason is he wants to grow your faith. That when you wait, you are forced to realize I'm not in control, which we'll talk about a bunch, and someone else is. And I have to rely on him. And I think maybe another reason is God makes Abraham wait because Abraham was this pagan that he just brought out of Ur of the Chaldees that probably had a lot of pagan problems. So it took 25 years to start shaping Abraham into the father that he needed to be. So God was waiting, I think for a couple of reasons, make Abraham's faith big, but also prepare him to be the right kind of dad. I read an article and the article title got me. It said this, um, Old, older fathers have geeky sons. You can Google it. And it was just a thing to get you. But what they found now, because people are having kids older, is that dads that have sons at an older age, you can take everything out, whatever you want. You know, it's, it's essentially, they're finding this. They have higher IQs, the sons do. So now they're trying to figure out why is that? I just think, man, when you're older, you appreciate things a lot more. I compare Carissa, my 16-year-old, to Myron, my three-year-old. And, and with Carissa, I was constantly trying to make her get older because I want to do stuff with her, right? Come on, I can't wait till she can ride a bike with me. I can't wait till she can play soccer with me. With Myron, I'm like, just stay small, bud. Don't grow up. I just want to bind his feet or something and keep him like, just your age right now is so perfect. And it's just been that way. It's just, you, you do that. You go to an old folks' home. I took my, uh, Gabrielle was like seven, Elijah was like four or something. We went to Highland House one time and they start talking in this hallway. You know how kids' voices echo? It was like all the old people just came out of their rooms. It was like an attack of the zombies, like, um, kids. And they like gathered around my kids. I'm like, whoa, okay. This one old dude's like, who is this one? She starts, he starts talking to Gabrielle and they just looked at me and said, she's gonna be my girlfriend. I was like, no, she is not. And we're leaving now, buddy. <laughs> They're creeping us all out. So I think God maybe had to do some work on Abraham on the faith side and also on the fatherhood side. So he says, you got to wait 25 years, bud. You got to wait. I think God says that same thing to you and me. We feel like, oh, I'm ready. And God says, you're going to have to wait. And I found the only way you can wait is if you trust the one you're waiting on. That's the only way you and I will ever wait well is when we trust the one we're waiting on. So you guys know probably the story of Ernest Shackleton. If you don't read about him, he's brilliant. He wanted to cross the Antarctica, the first man to do a cross Antarctica trip. So he put out this flyer like in the, New York, in the London Times. It was this, it was like, uh, men wanted long hours, dark hours, uh, 
no, uh, man, I'm, I'm losing it now. No security or no safety assured, but if we succeed, there will be great honor and reward. 1,500 people signed up for that. Yeah, exactly. Because it like, it got something. And they also knew Shackleton. This guy's a stud. So he goes down there, tries to do that on the endurance. Ice flow crushes them. They're all in lifeboats now. It's brutal. They end up on this little island called Elephant Island and they're stuck there. And so there's 27 of them and they have one boat essentially. So Shackleton and two other guys said, listen, we're gonna go and we will come back for you. I promise you. And so they got in this boat. They had 800 miles of open sea down in like some of the worst parts of the world when it comes to the ocean. 800 miles. They make it 800 miles, get on this island. They're on the wrong side of the island from this whaling vessel ship they're trying to get to. They have to cross this island with old technology. They did it in 22 hours. Today, people with GPS and Gore-Tex, they do it in 72 hours. I mean, just a man gets there, rallies a group. It takes a total of two years and like 30 days for him to get back to them. And he saved all 24 men that were left behind. And they asked the boss, what was your key to like hanging in there for two years and 30 days? He said, every morning I would get up and we would pack and we would remind each other of our boss's promise to us that he'd come back and we'd get ready for him to return. And we did this every single day for 850 days in a row. And he came back. I think that's awesome. I think that's how we're supposed to be. One to another, hey, our boss is coming back. Hey, the king is returning. Hey, the kingdom is growing. Hey, the kingdom is coming. That's how you have patience like Abraham. We pack up and we're ready every single day for the kingdom that God has in store for us. So Abraham has patience. And then I love Sarah's response. Verse six, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 91 years old, just had a baby. And she's like, this whole thing is a crack up. A promised child when my husband is 100, born in the geriatric ward, right? <laughs> Medicare picks up the payment. We name him Isaac because the whole thing is just laughter because no one would ever believe this is possible, right? Everyone laughs at Sarah when she goes to Walmart because she buys diapers and depends at the same time, <laughs> right? They're all eating the same food, strained vegetables, because between the three of them, they have one tooth, right? It's a crack up. She's cracking up. And in verse seven, she like talks to herself. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. We need to, I call this the greatest discipline of all. People talk about fasting and praying and those are huge things. This is the discipline that I think is the biggest one. You look at the Psalms, the Psalmists were always doing this. They were talking to themselves. She's reminding herself of the good things God has done. You wanna have a lot of hope and patience? Just go in your mind back over your life and remind yourself of everything God has done. And what you'll end up doing is laughing 
I took a cross-country mountain bike ride. You know, I took a mountain bike on a road trip, not the best vehicle in the world, with a case of refried beans, not the best idea for food to bring along with you. And I'm riding from Missoula, Montana. I wanted to ride back to Grants Pass with my brother and a friend. And about the time I got Giardia and I was sick and I was done, we come to Caldwell, Idaho on the border of Oregon and Idaho. And we're driving through, we're riding through this town and Kent Rusi, this traveling evangelist, stops us and is like, hey, we had a conversation with him. He's like, come to this crusade I'm putting on. We went to this crusade. They're giving away a free car. Guess what? I won the car. And I drove home. <laughs> and I laugh. I say, God, are you, that's unbelievable, right? I look at my wife and my kids in Edgewater, the San Juan Islands last week, and I just say, God, are you kidding me? You are so good. I think about the gospel, that Jesus would love me and adopt me and bring me into his family and redeem me and forgive me. And he's changing me so that one day I can rule and reign with him forever. And I laugh. Are you kidding me? Best discipline you can ever have is what Sarah does right here. Just talk to yourself about how good God has been, right? When God flexes, we laugh. Verse eight. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. There's a problem in paradise. Seems so happy and so awesome, but then there's problems. This life is good, but it's not New Jerusalem until it's New Jerusalem. The promised land has giants. This life has problems, tribulation, because we live in a fallen, sinful world. And we must never forget that. And we have a real enemy who's always trying to tap us out. And we see kind of that right here. So verse eight tells us the child grew and was weaned. Most commentaries say at this time, 4,000 years ago, moms would breastfeed their kids until four years of age. Two reasons for that. Number one, it was birth control. So when you're nursing, you typically don't have the normal way of getting pregnancy. Pregnant, you can, but typically you don't. Number two, they knew this, that the longer you breastfed a child, the stronger it became. And we're learning more and more of that today, right? That there is a certain period of time that you should breastfeed a child because they get really strong. Now, if the child's nine, probably a problem. You better, 
debt back on that. But there's a four years, sounds like pretty good. Three years, somewhere in that range, sounds like the right kind of time. So he's four years old. Ishmael, if you look at the math, somewhere 14, 15, 16 years old, depending on how you do your math. So older kid. Abraham, Isaac gets weaned and he throws a feast. I love that. I think as those that follow Jesus, we should look for every opportunity to celebrate. That we should be those that are living life with a zest and full and celebrating. So a number of months ago, actually it was a long process, we kind of laid out what are the four pillars of Edgewater? What, what, what are we about? And the elders, we had this long, it was actually a two-year conversation. And we settled on four. The Bible, number one. And when I say the Bible, I'm talking about everything that the Bible is, that Jesus comes in the volume of this book. It speaks, it declares him ultimately. The Bible, number one. Number two is celebration. That we feel like, hey, we're kids of the king. God's given us this beautiful world. We should celebrate as often as we possibly can. Celebration. Number three, community. That the two great commands of Jesus are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we should have this community of people that we are demonstrating love to. Jesus says, by this, all men shall know that you're my disciples, by your love one for another. So community. And then the last one is mission. That we've all been saved, not only from something, but for something. That God has us in neighborhoods and in families and sometimes sent overseas, but it's everywhere we're supposed to have mission. But one of our big pillars, probably rare, I haven't seen it in another church, is we want to celebrate. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but we have a fabulous Lord and we should celebrate. So we, like Abraham, want to celebrate. So Abraham has this idea in his mind as dad. Got his two boys there. I mean, this is going to be an awesome family gathering. And what happens? Verse nine, it appears that Ishmael was doing something to Isaac, mocking him, making fun of him, teasing him, something that wasn't good. So Sarah's giggling in verse seven turns to being grumpy in verse nine. And she's mad, really, really mad. And I think, and this is total conjecture, and you can not agree with me one bit, and I'll be okay with that. But I think right here, we're seeing the seeds for chapter 22, which is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible for me. It's where Abraham is told to take his son Isaac up on a mountain and sacrifice him, right? Just you're like, oh my goodness, God, what in the world? I think this chapter is showing us something that was unhealthy. And it's this, Isaac had become Sarah's precious. Do you know what I mean by that? That now for whatever, she's 91, 95 now, because he's four years old. Um, for mo- all of her adult life, she had this stigma of not having kids. She finally gets what she had most wanted And it becomes really, really important to her. It becomes her precious. So the moment somebody hits or touches her precious, maybe just teasing or something, she overreacts. Kick her out. I think it's an overreaction because her precious 
was being touched. Family's good. But when you elevate family up to too high of a position, it'll crush you. It'll crush your kids. If your kids become your God, do you know that you will ruin them 100%? Because what happens is this. When your kids get too high of a place in your life, you fear ever displeasing them. And if you fear displeasing them, you don't properly discipline them. When you don't properly discipline them, they get spoiled and self-indulgent. But even worse than that, a child will sense at some point that you don't actually love them. You're loving yourself through them. That it's a vicarious kind of relationship. And at some point in their life, they'll realize that unless I'm beautiful or attractive or get straight A's or do something that makes my mom happy or my dad happy, they'll be displeased with me. And they will not take that pressure. And very often they rebel. You cannot do this. I believe chapter 22 is God saying, you're not gonna do this to Isaac. I'm gonna make sure and straighten out this crazy thing that has happened. That's my personal feeling on it. I could be wrong. But I do know this. Verse 11, it says, this thing was very, not just a little bit, very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. He is in great pain. He loves Ishmael, loves his boy. If you've ever spent any time with blended families and two divorced couples that get together, it can be beautiful, but man, there's a lot of pain in it. There's a lot of just, oh, there's a lot of this kind of stuff right here, right? One mom this way, another mom. It's just, it's hard. These things are hard. There's a text in the New Testament that says this. It's Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're gonna reap destruction. Chapter 16 was Abraham choosing the flesh to sow something. And it took some years, 15 but now, oh, there's great pain. But the other side of that verse is this. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. Sin is this way. We might think, oh, no repercussions. Year goes by, two years go five by, years go by. Eventually, there's a crop and it's hard. My wife and I were just talking about like, chain reactions, little things that seem insignificant and then blow up. Have you ever had those kind of things? So in the San Juans, we're getting on the ferry, day number one, Sunday morning, and there's a long wait. So my kids had gotten out and they're playing and someone had opened one of the little doors on the camper, on the bottom kind of uh, where you store stuff. And I've got bikes in there and tools in there and you know surfboards in there and whatever. There's all stuff in there. And so we get on the ferry, we don't even notice it. We get off the ferry and we're driving and I'm trying to find, I'm trying to follow Sean Lowe because he knows the way to go. I, I'm clueless. So I'm right, I'm right behind him. I'm able to see him. And then my wife is like, the door on the motorhome is open and it's flapping back and forth. So we go around a corner, you know, one corner it's good. The other corner is like opening up and I'm like, oh, well, we've got like 50 cars behind us. It's an island road. They don't make island roads wide. 
It's like barely wide enough for us to be on. So I'm like, I can't really stop. I can't do anything. She's like, you better stop. Something's going to fall out of there. I'm like, I can't really. It's going to fall out and it's going to like shish kebab the guy behind us through his windshield and kill him. How would you like that? I'm like, okay, fine. (laughs) Wisdom speaks. So I pull over and we fix it. And then you just got all these cars going by. You know, everyone's getting off this big ferry. So then I get back on and I'm following now another couple that were in our group. I'm thinking, oh, they'll know where to go. Well, they went into the city, the little village there to get coffee. So I'm like falling in this big old RV into the city. I'm like, ah, what are you doing? And they're like, they call us. They're like, why are you following us? We're going to coffee. I'm like, oh. And I've got now behind me a truck pulling a camper and another truck pulling a camper. And they're all thinking that I, as the pastor, know where I'm going. So now we're all like this. It's a train wreck. I mean, literally we're this train wreck. We're like, ah. Oh. So we turn around and we're like, I'm pulling into, ev- there's no cell phone coverage up there. So we're like trying to, con- there's just no cell phone coverage. So we're pulling into like these little uh, campsites, like looking for Sean Logan. We pull into this one finally. And it's, it has this nasty corner where you can't really like turn around. So the camp host comes out. She's like, ah doing? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> My kids left the door open. Yeah. Right. You're just like, ah, <laughs> that's sin right there. It seems so insignificant. Ah! <laughs> All right. So here's my advice. Close the door on your campers. Number one, plant good seed. Just plant good seed. Sow to the spirit and you reap life everlasting because our enemy is so good at leveraging sin to just cause you and me tons of sorrow and pain. Plant good seed. To this day that Abraham, as dad had this idea of, oh, it's going to be so much fun celebrating with my boys. Verse 14. So Abraham had to rise early. He took, he Early morning, he took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. What, what a bummer, right? From this awesome feast day to a family disaster. You ever had days like that? Man, I have. And there's this one little phrase. Usually I love these phrases. It's verse 12. It says, but God. Normally, when you see but God, you're like, oh, good things are coming. Good things are coming. He's going to solve this thing. He's going to do something awesome here. But God doesn't. God says, yep. You have to send away your son. You have to send him away. As a dad, man, I just can't even imagine that. I can't imagine. I'm like, God, really? Really? What I want is I want everyone to have Williams syndrome. Have you ever heard of Williams syndrome? You've got to Google it. It's the most incredible thing. It's the polar opposite of autism. So Williams syndrome, is, it's a genetic disorder. Kids that have it, anyone that has it, they love everybody. Like literally, they go up and hug anybody. The, in strangers, whoever, they just smile and they think that everybody loves them back. Like they just go through life loving, which is, it's a great quality, but can you imagine being the parent of that child? Like, ah, don't cut, get away from him. Come here. Why? He's happy. I just want to hug him. (laughs) You're like, ah, 
But that's what I want. I want everyone to just, oh, let's all get together and have a good time. But the reality is, it doesn't always work that way. And Romans 12, 18 says this. It says, as much as is possible. I love that phrase. As much as is possible, be at peace with all people. Because sometimes, truthfully, it's just impossible because we live in a fallen, sinful world. And so God here must know if it's bad at four, it's just going to get worse. If it's bad at four, it's going to get worse. And this is the best option in a broken, busted up thing. And then God gives grace in verse 13 because he says this. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman because he is your offspring. Essentially what, what God is saying to him right now is this. Do you trust me with Ishmael? There's gonna be a bigger trust in the next chapter. Do you trust me with Ishmael? And I think that every dad and every mom at some point has to cross that bridge. Do you trust me with your son? Do you trust me? And I don't know if there's anything more difficult for a parent. Because parents, what do we want to do? We want to control the lives of our kids. Because we know there's like danger and, and don't hug that person. I know you've got Williams syndrome. Don't hug, right? We always want to protect our kids. That's in us. And we know if you make those decisions, oh no, that's going to hurt you. So we want to protect. And that's a good thing. But at some point, we, we can't do that anymore. Right? You've all faced that. At some point you realize, I can't control my kid. My three-year-old Myron, hey, brush your teeth. I don't want to brush my teeth. Right? The minor defiances. Do you want to have rotten teeth? Yes. When you open the mouth, just cram it in there. All right, dude. All right? Or as they get older, the, the clothing or the school, or I don't want to go to church, or I don't like school, or whatever it is. Hey, this is the person I want to marry. No, you cannot marry that guy. Right? There's all those things. At some level, you're going to say, all right, I trust you, God. I trust you with my kids. I've had to sit with moms whose kids are in jail and tell them, do not bail them out. Do not bail them out. This is the best thing that could ever happen. I'm telling you, you visit them, you love them, you tell them when they get out that you have a home for them, but right now, this is the best thing for them. You have to trust God. You have to trust his redemption. You have to trust that he loves them. You have to trust that he can take what the enemy wants to use for evil and turn it for good. You trust all those things. The reason why I trust those things is because it's happened in my life. So I got to trust. Ultimately, at some point, my kids, even now, <laughs> to God. All right. All right. So that's what's happening right now. So Abraham sends them out with very limited provision. He doesn't pack a donkey or pack a horse or get a caravan. Why? Because he trusts God. Okay, God, if you're going to make a great nation of my son Ishmael, I'm going to trust you with that. Give her a skin of water and some bread. Skin of water would probably be three and a half gallons. It'd be a goat skin, essentially, that they would, you know, tie up all the holes, tie up the legs, and you fill it with water and you carry it around. Three gallons. That's it. And this is what happens. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, 
She put the child, he is 15, under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. What's the name Ishmael mean? God hears, good job. So you, that's, it doesn't mention Ishmael in this text, but it does mention Ishmael in this text. And God heard Ishmael, the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. I love that. And he grew up. God was with Ishmael. Whatever your thoughts are, God was with Ishmael. And he grew up, he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Right here I say, when God flexes, there's always a good end. Brutal. Yeah, oh man, this is, but it's a good end. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I have for you. Thoughts of peace to bring you to a glorious end. Right here you see the second promise of God kept. Because in chapter 16, when Hagar takes Ishmael and she runs away from Sarah because she's being mean, God makes a promise to her right there. I will make Ishmael a great, great nation. I'm gonna make nations that come out of him. Here's his second promise kept. And this land of Beersheba, my charity and I were there. It's the most brutal land I've ever been. Just dry as dry. It, we were there in May and there's nothing green in May. It's brutal. It would kill cockroaches. Like it's brutal land. That's where they're at. They're in the most brutal land and God comes at the very end and says, okay, okay. And verse 19, it's almost like, oh my bad, there's a well right there. It's, it's, here's what I think happened to her. Her misery blinded her. Have you ever dealt with people like that? They're so focused on their misery, like, the, oh, my child, that the well's right, they, they can't even see the solution. They're so depressed. Events are so bad. Their marriage is so bad. Their kids are so bad. Whatever it is, that they can't see anything else but that bad thing. You ever dealt with people like that? Man, in counseling, I've agonized with people like this, tried to argue them out of it. It, it does not work. It doesn't work. Where I'm at now with people in that position, I think that what has to happen is a verse 19. Then God opened her eyes. When people are in that such like, oh, I just start praying for them. Hey, can I pray for you? Because I know I'm not gonna argue out of this. I will not argue you into sight. I'm not gonna be able to do that. What has to happen here is God has to lift this and he has to touch your heart. And when that happens, okay, then we can get by. And what you see in verse 20 is this. It's the best of a broken world. I'll be with the boy. Abraham, trust me. I'll be with the boy. And he grew up and he becomes what he's supposed to become. I think the best thing for Ishmael was for him to go live where he needed to live. That's what was required for him and God knew that. Broken, busted, there's a better plan. Chapter 16 though, seed bad, 
but I'll take that bad seed and I'm gonna make something great with Ishmael. I'll be with him. I have this uh, guy that I've been reading. His name is Richard Rohr. And he looks a lot at like ancient cultures and boys growing up. And he says this. He says, for a boy, they need to learn five things as early as possible. And these five things, he just hammers them. Here's what they are. Number one, life is hard. Number two, you're not that important. Number three, life is not about you. Number four, you're not in control. And number five, one day you'll die. And he says this, if you go across time and across geography throughout the world, whether it was the Aborigines or in Asia or wherever it is in Africa, almost every culture had a way of instilling these five principles in children's lives. Do we do that in America now? Man, we say be on YouTube and make, a, make it all about you, right? It's, it's amazing. I think those are healthy. I add one more personally. It's this. I had hope. Everything you do matters more than you can imagine. Because what you're doing right now is going to reflect as a believer through all eternity. That you are, by your little decisions, it's brick by brick, you're building who you are. So your little decision to tell the truth or tell a lie, it's not just here in a little time frame. That's actually building who you become. Your decision to be kind or to be mean, to serve or to be selfish, those are bricks that are going to echo through all of eternity. That life is that important. So really take your decisions to heart. So when I read this story, it seems harsh, but I see God being gracious and saying, this is the best of a broken situation. All right, so it ends with this fascinating little story. I'll be fast. At that time... Abimelech, you could remember him if you remember chapter 20. He's a king uh, in, Philist, in, the, in a Philistine area. Uh, it's the one that he lies to about Sarah and Sarah is brought into his harem and he has a really bad nightmare and God comes to him and says, you've taken another man's wife and I'm gonna kill you, right? And there's the whole process. He rebukes Abraham, why have you done this to me, man? But then they part on pretty good terms. So he's back. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. That's amazing to me. Guy that lied, guy that kind of did a bunch of, somehow this Philistine king can look at Abraham and how he lives his life and see God's favor on him. I hope God has that kind of favor on my life. The people around me can say, God's with you. And that's a great testimony. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, chapter 20, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abimelech now is looking down in the future for his kids and Abraham's kids. He's knowing this guy's a special dude. I want to stay an ally of this man. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water, 
that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. Abimelech's like, oh my goodness. You're messing with this dude? God's on his side. He's going to kill me over a woman. I mean, what's going to happen over a well? Oh no. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And Abraham said, set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. That's the first time we've seen that. First time God has called the everlasting God. He's gonna outlive this well. He's gonna outlive these problems. He's gonna outlive these issues. He's the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Okay, quickly. When God flexes, we get his favor and it shapes our future. So a well 4,000 years ago in Beersheba was everything. It's how you survived. So imagine a, uh, they're called an electronic magnetic pulse bomb, right? The ones where they take a nuclear bomb and set it off in the sky and it wipes out everything electrical. So there's no trucks running up and down the freeway bringing in groceries. There's no way you can drive your car unless it's an old Volkswagen. Uh, There's no way you can use your cell phone. Everything's wiped out. That's what a well was. Imagine life after an EMP goes off. That's what life would be without a well. That had happened to Abraham, all right? So this book was written to some slaves who are wandering in the wilderness 500 years after this story. How important would this be to them? Well, he got water. On top of that, who is the historic enemy of the Philistines, or the, of the Israelites? The Philistines, right? David versus Goliath, right? They're in the land. Oh no, they're trouble, trouble. Canaanites as well. So you have Abraham winning water and winning peace in the land because of God's favor. And how did he do it? Did he go fight Abimelech? Did he go complain to Abimelech? No, he didn't do anything. He is living out Deuteronomy 32, 35 that says this. Listen, don't worry about it. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Abraham is literally living that out. He's not freaking out. He's not going over and telling Abimelech. He doesn't even worry. He's just like, God's got my back. And at some point, this wrong about this well will be made right. Until it's made right, I'm just going to wait. Who lives like that today? I don't know anyone that lives like that today. And yet Abraham is lifted up in the New Testament as the example of faith. He just trusted God. I'm not gonna make a big deal about it and take that well if they want it. God will fight for me. And God does. I think the only way you can live with an Abrahamic faith, the only way you can live that way is if you truly know who Jesus is. I was talking with Jason Tucker a bit right before this 
message. And he was saying, we've been studying the Old Testament. You can get this idea that God's really angry in the Old Testament. Have you ever got that in the Old Testament? (laughs) And he said, here's what he told his son to do. Think about Jesus when you're reading about God in the Old Testament. And that usually shapes it right. The way that I personally can let things go and not try to get vengeance and say, all right, is by knowing, hey, Jesus, Jesus will make it right. Jesus has told me he'll make it right. So we get to go to the table right now and receive the body and the blood. And I would ask this, as you take it and as you take a moment and you think, maybe there's some areas that you're still trying to control, maybe with your kids, maybe with work, some area where you're just like, oh, it's driving you crazy. Maybe today, Genesis 21, God would say, trust me, you can't control this thing. You're being driven into the dirt by this. Let it go and trust me. And then you eat and you drink of him. Okay, I don't really want to trust you, but give me the faith, give me the strength to trust you. And so Jesus You are the promised seed. The one that defeated the serpent, the ultimate enemy of us, the ultimate one that takes the fallness of this world, the brokenness of humans, and leverages it for all kinds of pain and sorrow. You're the one that's able to turn the darkness of the cross into the resurrection of Sunday. And so I pray this day, Lord, for those in here who maybe feel a bit like Abraham, just displeased right now. What's happening? Why is this happening? I pray that as we eat and drink of you, you would give to us, each of us, the ability to trust your work in your way. May we know that, Father, if you spared not your only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall you not with him give us all good things. May we trust that promise like Abraham did, clinging to it. May we know, verse 1, that you did what you said you would do. You did what you promised you would do. May we cling to that. And may we go from here, having our faith grown a bit, having the patience of this world increase us and complete us, as James 1 promises. So may we eat and drink of that. May we continue, Lord, tomorrow morning to know that each one of us is being sent out into workplaces, into neighborhoods, into friendships. So like Abraham, the Abimelechs and the Feichels can look at us and say, hey, God's with you. God's with you. 
So may your favor rest upon each one of us, we pray. We ask this in your name.